This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. So I grew up in Manhattan in New York City. It sounds like we had pretty much the same childhood. I grew up in a building with a thousand people on an island that had toxic water that we couldn't touch. Pretty much your childhood, same. <laughs> uh, no, that'd be about the polar opposite. <laughs> One of the great joys of this show is that I get to talk to people who see the world so differently, come from such wildly different backgrounds, yet I can learn a lot from them. That's certainly the case with Jared Reynolds, certified financial planner to the stars. The stars of bass fishing, that is. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and on this show, I talk to regular people, people like you and me, who have figured out how to thrive in this terrifying new economy. Every episode comes in three parts. Part one, the background. What made these people the way they are? What formed their passions and their skills? Part two, we dig into the business they run today, their passion economy business. And part three, we pick apart their story, like so many bass fish carcasses, for lessons we can apply in our own lives and businesses. On today's episode, a bit of a curveball, something I hadn't quite thought about before. Jared Reynolds loves something so much that he realized doing that thing professionally might ruin it for him. So he used that passion to identify a niche in a totally different business that allowed him both to have a thriving, successful practice and also continue to live his passion exactly on his own terms. Sounds kind of vague. We're going to get into the details with great precision right now. Jared's background. I grew up outside of Warsaw, Missouri on Truman Lake. My family, we have a resort there called Osage Bluff Marina. So... You know, I tell people I'm not from a small town. I'm actually from outside of the small town, kind of in the middle of nowhere. His dad had been a construction worker who loved fishing. So his dad combined those skills and built that marina his family still owns. That was great. But his dad then took it one step further. He loved fishing so much, he wanted it to be his job, his profession. So he decided to make it his living and go pro, if you will. Professional fishing. I think I've made clear fishing is not something I know anything about. At first, I was like, is he a fisherman? Like he catches fish to sell in stores and restaurants? No, that's not it. Jared was a professional bass 
fisher. He fished for sport in competitions as an athlete, competing in tournaments across the country where you can win money for getting the biggest fish, the highest combined total weight of your fish, and so on. Yeah, that's nothing to do with putting food on the table. In fact, in my family, we don't eat bass. You know, that's really? the rule. <laughs> yeah, it's, really? it's a big deal. It was one of those deals. I mean, that's what you catch for sport and, you know, to win tournaments and, you know, fish the circuit, make a living and all this stuff. And, and so you always wanted them to grow bigger. And so in no way, shape or form, do you ever eat a bass? Oh, it's taking money out of your pocket. <laughs> that's right. So, so what does a professional sports fisherman do? Well, so there's different circuits around the country, and it really kind of started with bass, B-A-S-S, and something should be pretty clear to you right now. Tournaments usually last about four days. Jared knows fishing. Every day you go out really early in the morning. He knows uh, professional bass fishing. Three o'clock in the afternoon, everybody must be back by that time. Really well. And you come and you weigh in the fish. So if you get, you know, five fish, then you obviously want the biggest stringer of fish. And so it's a combined total weight. And then usually there's a big bass component each day that you can kind of win a smaller check or prize for. But he had this experience when he was a kid that changed his life trajectory. Thursday night hog fights, okay? And so Thursday night hog fights were just short three-hour evening tournaments in the summer, okay? And so we went to go fish it. Well, I actually fished with my dad's best friend and competed against yeah. my dad. So the good part of the story is we not only won the tournament and I got to beat my dad, but we got big bass. And so, you know, I thought, wow, this I got this. You know, I know what I'm doing. But the, the thing that a lot of people don't know about that tournament was my dad's friend, he was in the front of the boat. It was getting about end of the tournament, and he missed a really big fish. He hooked him, and it got off. And I watched this grown man just go ballistic about missing this fish. And, you know, I'm just a kid in the back of the You mean like boat. screaming and yelling? And yeah, and throwing the rod and cussing and everything else, you know? And it was kind of then that I was, you know, like, man, if that's the way fishing tournaments is, you know, it's going to make me like that because it's so important to catch the fish, then I don't need to go that route. Something I really notice about Jared is when he talks about his life, he's able to very quickly figure out what is important to him, what will give him a satisfying life. And he's able to make massive transformational changes fairly quickly when he realizes his own internal desires have changed. Like, how many 11-year-olds realize in an instant, fishing against their dad, that I don't want to be a professional fisherman. It sounds like a job that makes you hate fishing, and I love fishing. Then later he was in college, and he's thinking, I'm going to be an architect. And he goes to architecture class and thinks, I don't like architecture class, and therefore I don't like architecture. I'm not going to do that. So maybe I'll become a lawyer. It kind of felt to me like, man, I guess I'm doing this because I'm supposed to, and it'll be a good job, and maybe I'll make some good money, you know. But the more I was kind of in it, I was like, this, it's, it's not doing it for me. Like, but I guess, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. I got to get a good job and all that. And uh, so through some conversations with some of my fraternity brothers, I found out about the stock market and mutual funds. And this was, you know, 97, 98. So, man, things are going great. Yeah, everyone's a genius back then. Ex exactly. And they're telling me how much their money's growing by. Well, again, I could do math. And I thought to myself, like, wow. You know, so I immediately went to my counselor and said, what do I need to do to, you know, 
work in that kind of world with these mutual fund things and that, you know? And she said, well, you could look at being a financial advisor. And this clicks. He really likes it right away. And now, decades later, he still likes it. But then this other thing happens. In one of his classes, he gets an assignment to interview an industry professional. A lot of his classmates are just going to local people and interviewing small-time financial advisors or whatever. But Jared is, I hope this is clear by now, a hustler. He goes the extra mile in everything he does. So he decides, I'm going to interview a big shot. He knew about some obscure connection to a big money manager in Chicago who worked in the Sears Tower. And Jared makes some calls and sets up an interview. So a buddy of mine and I hop in the car. We drive all the way up there. You know, I get there. And I got to spend a little time with his assistant first. Was interviewing her and everything. And I thought, right, I came from nowhere, middle of nowhere, and I thought to myself, boy, I'm going to the big city. That's where I'm heading, right? So, so I wanted to go where you were and grew up. <laughs> At least I thought I did. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm sitting there interviewing the assistant. I look out the window. She has this unbelievable view of Lake Michigan. And I commented on that. You know, again, I grew up on water, so I noticed. And I was like, wow, that's a beautiful view. And she leans forward and it's like, wow, I guess you're right. And that kind of struck me. I was like, wait a minute. This is your office window. How do you not know that that's a beautiful view? And we're talking, talking, and, you know, she's talking about their days. And, oh, hey, where's, uh, I, I mentioned after she ran through their entire day of all these meetings from daylight to dark. And I said, well, you didn't mention getting lunch or eating and any of that. And she's like, oh, no, we don't. We just work through the day. And so that was kind of the key that, all right, working in an environment like this is not what I want to do. You know, and then Mr. Edinger slid open the little window between the two offices and said, you know, all right, you got 20 minutes. And so I had, I was finishing up a question with his assistant and he says, 19. And I was like, wow, this guy's serious, you know? And so I just picked <laughs> yeah. up my books, walked straight into his office, you know, and I had serious all Serious is one word for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I believe me in my head, I'm like, we don't even have time for politeness around here, but you know, again, yeah. I'm just a country boy. What do I know? And so- I'm going through my regular questions, you know, how'd you get started, all that kind of stuff. And I got to the last one. And I said, well, you know, if you could go do it all over again, what would you do? And he thought for a minute and he said, uh, I'd specialize. And he's like, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I, I appreciate that. You know, kind of finished up my report and, you know, really thought about that on the way home. Like, what did he really mean specialize? You know, because he didn't necessarily provide a lot of elaboration around that. He just said he would specialize. And well, anyway, I put it in the report, turned the report in. I did get an A. And, you know, then I went out, got an internship and started my career. And if you want more evidence that Jared has drive, he got his official certification. That's a big deal. While he was still in school, he started working before he even graduated. So it was going good. I had some success. And then my dad calls me and he says, hey, I got a buddy. He fishes the circuits. You know, he's really had a bad experience with an advisor, and he's looking for some help. Can you help him out? And I was like, well, yeah, sure, absolutely, Dad. And I said, I can talk to this guy. I know fishing. And that's when it, you know, I, I always tell people, that's when it was like a brick falling out of the sky, and it just hit me. I was like, wait a minute. I know fishing. I can focus on this, and I can specialize in this area. And so I just asked my dad. I said, hey, is anybody doing what I do focusing in this industry? you know, at all. And he kind of thought for a minute. He says, no, no, not that I know of. I said, all right, well, you know, then that's what I'm going to do because I can fish and I can talk to these guys. These are, they're my people, you know? 
and so that's how it, that first initial, I don't know, aha moment, if you will, started. There's a key question. How did Jared take that aha moment and turn it into a business? That's after the break. So how did Jared Reynolds manage to put his passion in the center of a seemingly unrelated business? Well, first off, I think it's helpful to walk through why this kind of specialization, focusing on a particular niche, particular area of the business, would matter in a field like financial planning or wealth management. Financial planners, in a sense, offer a generic service, a commodity service. You know, we all want a lot of the same things. We'd like to put a little bit away for savings. We probably want to send our kids to college and set them up. We might want to buy a house and eventually retire with some comfort. So financial planning and wealth management can become very generic, commodified businesses. So Jared, like many, but certainly not all financial planners, realizes the core passion economy lesson. I need to figure out what I can uniquely offer to some group of people who powerfully want that thing. But how does loving fishing get you to be a better wealth manager? Do bass fishermen have special financial needs that are different from other people? Financial planning needs? I think a lot of it is, number one, you know, not different than other people. It's just, what's the structure? Are you single and going out this, you know, on your own? Do you have a family at home and all that? So you got to understand their actual family makeup and dynamic. But then it is, you know, hey, did we win a tournament? Do we have royalties coming in? How can we shelter and protect these? Because also, you know, we live in a very litigious society. So, you know, they're on the road all the time. So there's room for accidents. And I got to make sure that there's no, you know, gaping risk of being open to a lawsuit because you rear-ended somebody or something. Because as soon as they find out, you know, you're a famous fisherman, oh, you know, I mean, they're going to come after you. And so there's a lot of things that just kind of ancillary that go into that. But then from the technology standpoint, so, you know, we're really big on remote access to everything. And because these guys are on the road, you know, eight months out of the year. And so they have to have the ability in a very short amount of time, you know, we'll jump on a screen share and dump, dive into our wealth planning software and sit there and go through everything and say, you know, all right, here's where we're at. Hey, we just won this tournament. Here's the influx of money. Now, you know, we have these goals and, and we can fund in these levels, but we got to hold it back, you know, reserves because you got these entry fees coming up and we got to be prepared for that. These tournaments can pay out 25 or 50 places, right? But now, granted, you know, 50th place may only be $1,000 or something. And the entry fees can be five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 into these things. I mean, it gets expensive to do this, which is why they got to have the sponsors, you know? So now you got to understand sponsorship contracts. Well, you know, if you don't have a clue about the fishing industry and the guy's like, hey, can you help, you know, read this contract and translate it to money to me, you know, well, you got to be able to figure out, well, what's the pay cycle like? You know, when are they going to pay? How are they going to pay? When can they drop you? Because that's a big one. You know, if all of a sudden, you know, you haven't won four tournaments, you know, can they just drop you? That's a risk. Well, we got to be ready for that risk. And so, I mean, you've got to understand this industry to know the way that this money flows from tournaments, sponsors, et cetera, even TV shows and endorsement deals and everything else to be able to advise on it. So I got this first client, right? And it happened to be my first six-figure client. So this was a really, really big deal, right? 
And I actually because you're a young guy it. starting out, you're oh yeah, yeah. And so I, I fly down to Atlanta, and I mean this is you know almost 20 years ago. Fly down to Atlanta, meet with him and everything, and he's you know shows me the statements, and I'm like, wow, six figures, this is a really big deal, you know. And so you know I bring the accounts on, all this stuff, and his old past advisor had actually, you know, again he was one of the bad apples, right? He had fraudulently done things in the account, and I could clearly see it. And so, you know, we actually ended up, I helped the client take the advisor to arbitration and he won. So now I'm sitting here like, wow, you know, I've really helped this client out. But I was like, wow, how do I get more fishermen? You know, because I immediately was like, well, there is no way that I am going to be able to, you know, go around with my dad on these tournament trails. This, that's, that's impossible. I still have to work. You know, I'm just getting married now and, you know, looking at starting a family, all this. I can't be on a tour of the tournament trail. And so I started talking to my dad, like, Dad, where do I need to be to get in front of fishermen? And he said, well, you know, there's two places a year where everybody goes in this industry. One of them is the Bassmasters Classic. And so that is the Super Bowl of bass fishing. So I went to that, and then there's another one called iCast, which is where all the new products come out. It's the new showcase and all the creations of fishing poles and boats and gadgets and lures and everything in the industry. So at the Bassmasters Classic, besides the tournament and the big production that that puts on, there is a uh, trade show. So big, you know, hall with booths everywhere of all these companies. And so all I did was walk around with my dad. And one thing I noticed very quickly was everyone there knew my dad. And I was just like, wow. You know, like, this is a big industry. We're, you know, I traveled across the country here and, you know, so did my dad and, but everybody here knows him. And so I'm like, this is pretty good. This is going to work out. He can obviously make a lot of introductions. But the first year, you know, I got a lot of introductions, but it was, you know, oh, you're Walt's boy, you know, okay, you know, nice to meet you. And year two comes around and, you know, then it was, oh, you're Walt's boy, the finance guy, right? You know, yes, yes, I am, you know. And then by year three is where it started, you know, a little more frequently happening where, hey, you're Walt's boy, the finance guy, I need to talk to you. And I was like, finally. So Jared's a young guy, really new to the industry, but he's cracked this kind of code. He has found a way to engage clients and prospective clients who trust him, who knows that he gets them, and they can talk to him about their most passionate thing because it's his most passionate thing, fishing. And he really does have something to offer besides being able to just talk about fishing. It turns out that making money in the bass fishing world is a complicated thing, and Jared's background makes him uniquely suited to advise them. But he has this goal of opening his own firm, and he has some new puzzles he needs to solve. There's a professor at MIT named Scott Stern who's been very helpful to me in kind of understanding this thing I call the passion economy. And he recommends when people are picking a niche, an an area to focus on, to sort of just do some very rough mental calculation. How big is that industry? And how much of that industry can I get? So, you know, if you want to be the leading bass fisherman financial planner In Columbia, Missouri, that might be a challenge because you would have to have all the money of every single person and it still might not be enough. But if you want to be the financial planner of everyone involved in bass fishing worldwide, that might be enough money that you could get 6% or 2% of the business and still flourish. Is there enough champion pro bass fishermen for you to have a thriving career? No. 
<laughs> I mean, just being honest, no, there's not. <laughs> no. Which is why I had to kind of shift focus a little bit because I just started really seeing, you know, again, I landed some of the, you know, big names in the industry. And the beauty of having my dad in that industry for so long is, you know, when I would maybe have a lead to another pro or something, I could always talk to my dad and be like, hey, dad, you know, what do you think about so-and-so? Should I pursue that? Is it worth my time? Well, you know, my dad kind of knew the inside track and he'd be like, well, word is he just put the second mortgage on his house to pay last week's entry fees, you know? And I'm kind of like, oh, okay, well, yeah. never mind then. Let's not worry um, about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it started, I started really seeing that like, wait, you know, again, like you said, I mean, I've got this vision of a big practice and, you know, all these goals and where I want to take this practice and everything. And I was like, man, I don't think that that's even going to be remotely possible if I only focus on specific bass fishing professionals. When I went to iCast, so that was the other show, right? What I quickly found out there was, A, bass fishermen in and of themselves, there's not going to be enough. There's not enough money for my what I want to accomplish. And But when I was at iCast, I started seeing these companies, and I started at an early in my career focusing on retirement plans, so 401ks for companies. And that was, that's a real passion for me. And what I said was, wow, you know, these bigger companies, well, they all have 401ks and retirement plans. So again, I'm in this industry, I'm getting introduced to the president, and he's got a company with a retirement plan. Well, you know, we're have a common passion here of fishing. And so would you give me the opportunity to review your retirement plan? And that's when I started to discover, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's the businesses that are in the fishing industry, but then there's also business owners who want to be professional fishermen. So they got a successful business, but they're more of the, you know, again, the weekend warrior. They're fishing local regional tournaments, and boy, they aspire to be the pro, and they may never be, but, you know, it's just like golf, right? I'm never going to play at Augusta. But I can watch it and be passionate about it and look at the clubs the guy's swinging and go get some and all that kind of stuff. Well, it, it's a little bit of the same thing in the industry. So then when I come in, well, I have some of those guys that he really loves watching on TV as clients. And so there's, he's a little enamored, you know, right? Or a client may be somewhat enamored with that. And I also found that they were much more willing to let me review a retirement plan of a company than they were to just open up and start talking about their personal stuff. Because, right, because we got mutual friends, either my dad or my clients or this or that. So personal was, you know, it's a little tougher conversation to bridge that gap. Because they don't necessarily want their friends to know that they're not as rich or they're way richer than other people think or whatever. Exactly right. So he's armed with this new plan. He's going to expand his niche. He's not just going to focus on this particular group, very tiny group, of professional bass fishers. He's going to focus on the businessmen and women who show up at fishing trade shows or on people with means who love to fish, but for whom fishing isn't their job. This works beautifully well. Jared is able to open his own firm. Previously, he had been doing all this at someone else's firm with his business partner, Carol Wilkerson, because there are still people Jared is uniquely suited to help and advise. All of his clients from his first job follow him to his new firm, which shows just how much this specialized knowledge, this focus on a passionate niche was seen as an invaluable part of Jared's service. After the break, what we can learn from Jared. 
So what can we learn from Jared Reynolds? How does a financial planner for guys who like to fish have anything to teach us? Well, turns out there's a name for this thing Jared is doing. Can you explain what passion prospecting is? <laughs> yes. And so, you know, I do have to give credit to Ron Carson because I got it from him. So we and who became... is Ron Carson? He teaches financial planners how to be more successful financial planners, right? The... Uh, yes, he is also a financial planner himself, a very successful yeah, one. Right. And, and he started a coaching program, and we became members of that coaching program. And so when we got there, you know, it's all about how to run your practice and how to, you know, structure the organization and, and all this stuff and how to get new clients, how to service them, you know, all that kind of stuff. And when we got there, he starts talking about passion prospecting. Well, his passions are, you know, golf, wine, and flying. And so, you know, I was like, well, I am not a good golfer by any stretch. I like wine, but even though I like wine, I am not a guy that could quote the year and vintage and everything. Again, it's not this super big passion of mine. I know I love great cabs, you know. And, well, I don't have my pilot's license nor the money to go get a jet and fly around. But it hit me when he starts talking passion prospecting, I kind of looked back and I was like, well, that's, that's what I'm doing. You know, I mean, fishing is a passion of mine, and and I went into that specialty, you know, really kind of because of my dad, and it just sort of happened that way. But that's what I'm doing. I'm passion prospecting, and meaning you know, you're it, finding prospective clients who share your passion and finding them exactly through that right. passion. Yeah, and I learned the hard way, right? You know, I thought, well, if this works for fishing, we can do this with like anything, right? And, you know, again, young kid, I want to, you know, bring in as many clients as I can and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, well, let's let's buy some, you know, theater tickets. And let's take some clients to the theater, okay? And I did that one time because I found that <laughs> that's not for me, you know? The right. clients loved it. They thought it was amazing. But first of all, I'm sitting there in the seat being like, well, we're watching theater. There's no time to talk business, so that's not going to work. And this is killing me. Like, this just isn't for me. And, so, and they you know, can Ron feel that. Always... I can assume that if <laughs> oh, I'm on a yes. boat with you catching bass, I can tell you're super psyched. And if I'm seeing the latest production um, of a play with you, I can tell you're not super psyched. And so I, I probably <laughs> yeah. don't want a financial advisor who's really bored right. with something I, I care go, a lot about. Yeah. I go back to the university and I talk to the students now and, and I tell them that. I say, listen, Every one of you has a background, and there is something that you really enjoy, are passionate about, or know extremely well. You know, and I said, I don't care if it's your family comes from a bunch of chicken pluckers or whatever it is, okay? You know that, and you know that extremely well. Well, in America today, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, whether it's quilt weaving or whatever, but there is an entire industry around whatever that thing is. And I said, so get known in that niche of whatever you know, enjoy, and are passionate about because you can't fake it, you know? And, and Ron tells you that. He's like, you know, you cannot go do something and fake it, especially like fishing. When I get put in a boat with a bass fisherman, with a pro, right, he is going to have the absolute top of the line rods, reels, lures, et cetera. Okay. And they're called bait casters. And, you know, if I, you've kind of mentioned you're not a fisherman. If I put a bait caster in your hand and said, cast it, you won't be able to make one cast with it. Okay. It's going to backlash. There's going to be this wow. giant knot of line in your hands and you're just going to be like, what I do. Right. Well, right. I can pick that thing up and throw it just as well as that professional fisherman. Cause I've done it since about age four. And so 
The other beauty of that is I'm not working hard trying to fish or keep up. I can actually focus on conversation and everything else that really is, you know, maybe one of the other reasons why I'm there. And, and so, yeah, I tell people, yeah, you that, cannot fake this and don't try. I guess if we think of professional bass fishermen as sort of that original core, then there's people in the bass fishing industry, like heads of companies that make lures and rods and all of that. Is that right? And then the next phase out is just people of means who just really love bass fishing. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was that progression. It was, okay, hey, I got the pros. Then I'll get some kind of companies and people in that industry specifically. Then it started going to business owners who love fishing and are trying almost to kind of be that pro, but yeah, they got a successful business over here. And that one was where I really was like, man, that's that's my bread and butter right there because they've got this successful business making money that actually does not depend on their ability to catch a fish. Right. And so there's that. They're making good money. So I saw that this is my perfect ideal client. And then, you know, I went away from just bass fishing and started saying, well, you know, I love saltwater fishing. I love all this other kind of fishing. Why don't I go after that stuff? Now, the one fishing that I'm trying, right, and it's difficult when you grow up a freshwater bass fisherman your entire life, is I'm trying to become a fly fisherman. It's not going very well, but I'm working on it. Again, it's— And it's a very solitary, right? That's a tougher one to, to do sales on, I would it think. It is. I do love yeah. it. I've done it enough, and I like. I get this. I can see it, and I do love it. But it's also—you find, actually, in some cases, there's some real affluence— in that fly fishing world, number one, the equipment is expensive, okay? More expensive than bass fishing. And it's just this fine finesse style of fishing. And so, but anyway, I started going to other kinds of fishing and then I said, well, you know, that's great. I love fishing and everything. And then I thought, well, well what about hunting? I mean, I love hunting. So maybe I should focus some areas on hunting. And, and then it kind of hit, I was like, wait a minute, I just love the outdoors. So if I am dealing with people who love the outdoors and hunting and fishing, or even if it's just boating or you know swimming, whatever it is, as long as it's outdoors, I'm probably going to be able to kind of click and work with these people. They're going to be, you know, as I call it, my people. And I just found that if you're sharing some kind of passion like that with the outdoors, number one, you've got something to talk about. I'm not faking it. And if you're ever around fishermen or hunters, we got stories, right? And, and everybody wants to share their best, you know, bass story or catching a marlin story or, or whatever. And stories are great like that. And it builds camaraderie and just companionship and great relationships without ever talking business or anything. And again, it's I, I enjoy it. So I'm not faking it. I'm not sitting there in the meeting or in a boat or, or wherever or in a duck blind going like, man, I wish this guy would change the subject of conversation because this just isn't working for me. Right. No, I'm always engaged and I like it. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we share this passion, but you're not just like cold calling CEOs and saying, hey, do you happen to like bass fishing or other outdoor activities? If so, I'd like to come to your office and tell you some stories. <laughs> how, how do you put yourself in situations where you're with people who share the passion and you're sharing the passion with them. Sure. So it started, I want to say back around 09. My dad called me and said, hey, we're going to go to the Amazon and we're going peacock bass fishing and we're going to film a TV show down there. If you have clients or friends or whatever who maybe want to do this, then you, know, you can join us and they'll be there while we're filming a TV show and all this. And I thought to myself like, wow, 
that's really cool. You know, I mean, people are going to want to do this. They're going to go there. They're filming a show. It's to the Amazon, and we're catching, you know, what's called a peacock bass, which is just a beautiful fish and, and the most hardest fighting fish pound for pound, I think, in the world. So this was a big group, and I put together, it was 19 people total that went on this trip. And we all go down there. We have this great time. And I mean, I've got some big CEOs that I got introduced because I also use some of my dad's connections too. Like, hey, who do you know that you can invite and get me introduced to? But I was also inviting, you know, my friends and, and even my business partner went down with me and, and we had a great trip. Well, And these were clients I, and potential clients. Exactly right. But, you know, yeah. one thing I learned was, A, the group was way too big. Okay. Traveling that far with that many people, it's kind of a, a nightmare and, and I'll never do that. But also... Because of that specific trip, you know, we are off the grid for almost two weeks. And so I had a lot of local clients here um, and potential clients that I was asking, hey, do you want to go on this? Do you want to go on this? And it's like, well, I'd love to, but that's too, that's too long. I can't be gone and, you know, that out of touch for that length of time. And so I came back and I kind of brainstormed and I said, all right, I want to do some shorter trips. You know, something that's quick and easy and, you know, people wouldn't say no because of the length of the trip. And so I've got a client who owns a charter service on Marco Island in Florida. And I kind of contacted him. I said, hey, here's my idea. You know, I can get down there in a day. So what if we come down on a Thursday, we fish Friday, Saturday, and we come home on a Sunday? And he's like, yeah, sounds good to me. So we started doing that. And I actually ran that trip for about nine years of just every, you know, year we would go down there and do this trip. And I was Again, it was some clients, some potential clients, and that was working really well. And I would still do some of the other, you know, with kind of famous people filming TV shows. I went up to Alaska and, you know, and then we did a gator hunt in Florida and all this stuff that was getting filmed and everything. A gator and I hunt? Was, <laughs> yeah. 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 Again, it started branching out into other things, right? Yeah. We don't do a lot of gator hunting in Brooklyn, but we might, <laughs> it might catch on. Who knows? You never know. There could be yeah. some down there in the sewers, but— yeah, that's uh, anyway. what we're told. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and are you paying for these trips? No, 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 no. First of all, that's illegal in our industry. But second of all, all I did was organize it. I would put everything together. So I'd put the rental car together. I'd put the outfitter together. I would, you know, and so I would just type up this explanation of the trip and then start asking people and see who wants to go. And, you know, the trips began to fill up. And some of my rules, you know, I don't talk business on the trips. At I, all? There is, so this isn't like a timeshare well, situation. Like, come <laughs> Exactly right. Number one, I sat through one of those on my honeymoon. And so I had that experience very early on. And I was like, I will never put somebody in some kind of position like that. And, you know, <laughs> like I've, you're I've out got in the reputation. ocean and the guy's like, so let me tell you about our other products. You know. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I said, because yeah. if I did that in a boat, especially, first of all, they can't get away. So you really have cornered them, and they are going to be uncomfortable. And so I just made it a rule. I will never bring up business, but yet it always comes up. And so it's a natural way that we got to know each other and everything else, and they're going to ask what you do. And I am probably the lowest pressure salesman you've ever met. And I would just talk. And, you know, I just was like, hey, all I got to do is just be a good guy. I mean, you know, we all know people do business with who they like, okay? And so I said, I just, I need to be likable. My services do need to be good. I, you know, you got to have a great process, great service, you know, returns on investments, all that fun stuff. But, you know, I said, I, I need to be a good guy. And so my focus when I'm on these trips is using your manners, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just be a gentleman, help out, and be a good person. 
And I don't know, it's been a winning formula for me so far. So your main expense in that prospecting, that type of prospecting is your time, I would guess. And then you're obviously paying your own way. Is it effective as opposed to, I don't know, buying Google ads or taking a booth in a conference or whatever other methods people have? Well, I mean, I think so. You know, did you pick your financial advisor from a Google ad? No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so we've never done this major, you know, print marketing and all that kind of stuff. It's, I always looked at things and even cold calling and, and I did cold calling when I first started out, but it, it got to the point where I was like, okay, well, I wouldn't meet my attorney or my accountant, or, you know, if I had to pick an advisor, I would not meet them or go with a person from a cold call. So why would I do something that I wouldn't do myself? (laughs) And so it just works a lot better face-to-face. The ability to watch and interact with somebody and see that, well, this is a good person. I'll ask the question, what is it you do, you know? And now that they've asked the question, they're not defensive, And I always had to protect my reputation that I couldn't let it get out that, you know, oh, Jared wants to get you in a boat and, you know, whip out a laptop and show you a slideshow presentation of why you should work with this firm. Nobody's going to go fishing with me anymore. So I think it definitely has worked. And again, it's word of mouth. And even just to the point, like when we did the Amazon trip that very first time, well, the story of that kind of spread around Columbia and, and then a local magazine did a big article on me about that. And so... I started to kind of get known around here a little bit that, oh, hey, man, he goes on some, you know, big trips and stuff. And and I started getting guys calling me. I got a call from a guy who I barely knew. I mean, we had kind of maybe been acquaintances. And he invites me on this, this bird hunting trip to Argentina. Well, first of all, the hunter in me was like, this is amazing. I've always heard about it. I would definitely want to go there. And I said, well, who's on the trip? And he starts telling me. And I was like, wow, I know all those names, you know, here in my city. But I don't know them. I'm not friends with them. I don't have any connection with them, but I sure would love to. And so some of it's happened like that, where just the reputation of being an adventure kind of hunter, seeker, whatever, has led me into more trips. A lot of times I break down these takeaways into a variety of different lessons. But in Jared's case, it's just so clear, clean, and simple. He's finding the customers that match and appreciate his skills and passions most. He's finding them through their shared passion. He's solving a unique problem for a unique consumer, providing wealth management advice to people who earn their money in a really specific niche way or who spend their money in a really specific niche way. We should all be doing some variation on this. Think of it this way. J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, they're never going to have a Bass Fisher Obsessives department. There's not going to be hedge funds tailored to the needs of the professional outdoorsmen. That's not going to happen because there's not enough of them for those big companies to make it a focus. And it's precisely because there are not billions of dollars in that narrow niche that us regular people who want to have a good passion economy business can thrive. It is amazing how many people I've met through researching the passion economy who focus on a niche I might think is way too narrow. Amish farmers or the marketing needs of mid-market hospitals in the central Midwest or the accounting needs of wine growers in southern Oregon. In every case, what people find is the narrower the niche, the easier it is to clean up. Also, Jared is able to market himself in this 
way that just inserts him into people's lives at the place where they are happiest and most content and most passionate. He's not just sending out generic brochures about how he's going to help them have a good retirement and leave money to their grandkids. We can all do that. We can all figure out that thing we love doing, maybe it's not even the business we're in, that other people also love doing. And is there a way we can bring unique experiences to those people and interact with them at the place where they are happiest and most passionate? But more than anything, what Jared teaches us is there's more than one way to place passion at the center of how you make a living. You have found a way to center your life around the stuff you love most, the stuff you have a passion for. And I might have thought, why isn't he just in the field he loves? But it it sounds like you've been able to maintain a more raw love of fishing and hunting by not making it directly your job. You're not like that professional bass fisherman who's cracking his rod over his leg because he missed a fish. You're you're still maintaining the love of it, the passion of it, which I find really cool. You know, it's funny because just the other day, so my oldest son, he's 11. He's a huge fisherman and hunter. And he asked me, he's like, Dad, how can I make a living hunting, you know? And, and I said, well, buddy, I said, I gotta be honest with you, you know, it's it's a tough living. If it becomes dependent on that, your living and your livelihood becomes dependent on being successful on the hunt, it would just add, to me anyways, it adds this big element of stress that now I must be successful at catching a fish. That takes the fun out of it, that's stress. I don't want that, this is my enjoyment. I want to be out, if I don't catch a fish, the day on the water watching the sunrise and everything else and just that experience, if that doesn't do it for you, well, you shouldn't be fishing. So I just, I never wanted to put the stress of earning a living on that because then it would take the fun away. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 